The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. So greetings, everybody. I hope you're all well. Uh, good to see you back again. So you might you might notice that my, my voice is uh, a bit kind of gravelly and I've had, had a bit of cold the last few days, so if you feel if you find that it's too rough for you, then just uh, close your eyes and imagine that the Dhamma talk's been given by Tom Waits, and then uh, <laughs> and everything will be better. Okay, so uh, we're here for the uh, second of our instalments on the Parayana Wagga of the Sutta I am speaking to you. Uh, as usual, from a place in Harris Park, which is on the unceded land of the Baramadigal people of the Darug Nation. And so I pay respects and uh, honour to their elders, past, present and emerging. Uh, so uh, I hope that you've all had a great week this past week uh, and that um, life and everything like that is treating you as well as could be expected. All right, so let's start uh, with a brief recap from last week. So we began with the uh, uh, introduction to the Parayanavaga, which is the <clears throat> fifth chapter of the Sutta Nipata, which is one of the books in the Kuddika Nikaya of the Sutta Pitika, so the, the, the basket of discourses, the minor collection, and the anthology of discourses, Sutta Nipata. Parayanavaga, which means the way to the beyond. And so last week we looked at the first chapter, which is a narrative introduction. And I talked about the fact that this narrative introduction is it's a bit lowbrow, if you like, compared to the bulk of the text. And while it is clear that this is a substantially later addition to the text, I also argued that it has a narrative purpose. Um, particularly that it uh, situates the collection as a whole as a conversion narrative. So it's telling us something about how the early Buddhist community spoke to people who were around them in ancient India at that time, especially as they were spreading to new areas. Now, even though that first section is, uh, you know, uh, linguistically, uh, narratively, uh, doctrinally quite distinct from what we find in the central portion of the Parayanavagga, there's still a, uh, many connections between the two, and I'll point some of those out uh, as we go today. So for today, we will begin with the 16 questions or rather 16 sets of questions which were asked by various of the Brahmin students of uh, Bhavari uh, when they came to see the Buddha. So after their long journey, finally they came and they had the chance to ask the questions. Now a number of these uh, passages that we're looking at are actually quoted elsewhere in the suttas. So this gives, gives us a uh, a chance to do a bit of intra-textuality, uh, checking how the same text might be used in different places. Uh, and in fact, it's worth, worth bearing in mind that these particular verses, even if we just consider within the Pali canon, 
uh, are used and quoted in a variety of contexts. The, the Suttanipata, which is the primary context, uh, then there are these occasional cases where they're quoted in the four Nikayas, also uh, quoted in the Nidesa, which is the commentary, the canonical commentary on the on this chapter. And also we find a number of them are quoted in the Netipakarana as well, which is a uh, a kind of a guidebook to uh, interpretation of the suttas, also found in the Pundaka Nikaya. So these were um, uh, dealt with and explained and interpreted from a variety of perspectives from the earliest time. All right. Uh, and as always, um, since we have a, a you know, relatively short, um, oh, hang on. Oh, interesting. So, oh, sorry, I just noticed a message there by Susan. So, Susan Pembroke's uh, uh, given an announcement of a beginner's Pali class on Zoom that's being offered there. So, that's really interesting. Thanks for that. Uh, so, please do join up anyone who's interested to learn some Pali. <clears throat> I might pass that on to a few of my friends, actually. Uh, okay. Uh, let's have a look at the first set of questions from Ajita. And he was the first of the Brahmins who spoke to the Buddha. And the Buddha invited him to ask whatever he wanted. And uh, Ajita's questions are in some ways probably the most famous of the sets of questions uh, and which give a uh, rather uh, succinct uh, overview of the scope of the questions that are being asked by these Brahmins. Let's have a look at Ajita's questions. By what is the world shrouded? Asked Venerable Ajita. Why does it not shine? Tell me, what is its tar pit? What is its greatest fear? The world is shrouded in ignorance, replied the Buddha. Avarice and negligence make it not shine. Prayer is its tar pit. Suffering is its greatest fear. The streams flow everywhere, said Venerable Ajita. What is there to block them? And tell me, the restraint of, of streams, by what are they locked out? The streams in the world, replied the Buddha, are blocked by mindfulness. I tell you, the restraint of streams, they are blocked out by wisdom. That wisdom and mindfulness, said Venerable Ajita, and that which is name and form, good sir, when questioned, please tell me of this, where does all this cease? This question which you have asked, I answer you, Ajita, where name and form cease with nothing left over, with the cessation of consciousness, that's where they cease. There are those who have assessed the teaching and many kinds of trainees here. Tell me about their behavior, good sir, when asked, for you are alert. Not greedy for sensual pleasures, their mind would be unclouded, skilled in all things, a mendicant should wander mindful. <clears throat> okay, very good. So here in these uh, questions of Ajita, we have a uh, extremely succinct uh, and very powerful uh, set of questions. First set of questions, he's asking, well, what is the problem? Like, what is what is the uh, why 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 is things like they are? Second question is asking, well, what can we do about it? Uh, so the first one's about dukkha. Second one is, well, how do you how do you how do you practice? What do you do? And then the the third question is asking asking about the goal of practice. And so how uh, what actually happens 
do do we just keep do we just keep practicing forever? Does the the road go on forever, or is there an end to these things? And then finally, he asked a question about uh, those who have assessed the teaching and many kinds of trainees. In other words, those who are arahants is the first category: those who have assessed the teaching and those who are still on the path. And ask about their practice. So how do how do those people live, who have uh, fully or partially attained the goal? <clears throat> So even within these just few verses, uh, there's a very, very uh, broad and very succinct and very powerful uh, expression of the whole scope of the Buddha's teaching. <clears throat> there are a number of um, uh, interesting little uh, linguistic details uh, that I'll mark. I won't, I won't dwell on them for too long, but uh, worth noticing. Uh, first one is what is, uh, by the world, by what, what is the word shrouded, nivuto? Now, this is actually the past participle, the same word that we're familiar with, uh, with nivarana, as in the hindrances. So this is by literally by what is the word, word hindered, we might translate that. But the basic meaning of avarana and nivarana is to shroud or enclose or to darken. And in the, um, uh, in the Rigveda, uh, the vritra, the, the, the cosmic serpent or the dragon that enshrouds the world. This is the word for the dragon that enshrouds the world. And so there's almost this word, this idea that the, it's, it's what covers things up. It obscures them. It brings darkness. <clears throat> now, the uh, idea of the tar pit, uh, if you're thinking of Br'er Rabbit falling into the tar pit, then good. You're supposed to be thinking of Br'er Rabbit falling into the tar pit. There is a story in the, uh, I think it's in the Satipatthana Sangyutta that talks about a monkey that gets its uh, hands and feet and even its face stuck in the tar. And the word for tar in that case is lepana, the same word we find here, uh, abilepana or lepana. So it could have, the, it has a variety of senses, but generally it means some kind of sticky substance. So something that you get stuck in <clears throat> and sometimes a tar pit. Uh, now, one of the most interesting lines here that uh, the Buddha is saying is when he says that prayer is its tar pit. Now, notice again, as, of, as so often the Buddha's sort of psychological strategy, now when he begins with the word, world is shrouded in ignorance. Remember that this actually calls back to the original narrative, because if you recall, the conflict there was that the teacher Bhavari was afraid that his head was going to split into seven pieces. And uh, Buddha's answer was, well, that, uh, that the head is ignorance and it's knowledge, which is that which splits the head into pieces. So uh, by calling back and using uh, the, the idea of avijja is making that connection there. Avarice and negligence make it not shine. Now, prayer is it? so. So far, by talking about avarice and negligence, you're already taught. You, you know, the Buddha's in a way establishing that common ground. You know, the Brahmin who's come to see him is somebody who's interested in knowledge, interested in overcoming ignorance, and so on. Uh, and so, the Buddha starts by, you know, finding some common ground, and then. He says, but prayer is the tarpit. Now, the word I've translated as prayer here is japa. And japa uh, basically means like encanting the Vedic mantras. And so this might be done uh, as a uh, like religious service, as a sacrifice. It might be done 
uh, as a, a curse, as we saw in the opening narrative. It might be done as a simply way of recollecting the Vedas and so on. But this is a very kind of common idea, japa. <clears throat> but japa has a slight ambiguity in its form because it also means to wish for or to desire for something. And so in that sense, it neatly encompasses the English word prayer. To pray is to repeat the sacred words, but to pray is also to ask for something, to beg for something, to wish for something. And so this is really uh, precisely what the Buddha is talking about here when he's replying to Ajita. Yeah? You think that when you're reciting your sacred scriptures that you will, you will get what you want, that this will help you to focus your mind and your aspiration and that you will realize that what you want, but actually this is what you're stuck on. This is what is holding you back. <clears throat> so a really a kind of dense line there and with quite um, powerful implications. You can imagine that the 16 Brahmins listening to this would have been um, challenged by this. Anyway, streams are flowing everywhere, blocked by mindfulness. Satitesan nivaranam. I tell you, the restraint of streams, they are locked out by wisdom. So the idea here, it's a little bit difficult to pass this verse out in the Pali, but the basic idea is that uh, that mindfulness keeps uh, the streams of desire in the world uh, checked, uh, but they are not fully locked out or fully blocked until wisdom comes into play as well. Um, that wisdom and mindfulness and that which is name and form, when questioned, tell me of this, where does this all cease? So one of the, this is an interesting question because he's asking about, like, even these things which we regard as being good, wisdom, mindfulness, right? I mean, how, how could you not want more of these things? And yet, even these things, do they come to an end? And what about name and form, Nama Rupa? Again, an um, uh, Upanishadic term. Uh, referring to Nama being the literally name or the conceptual side of life, the concepts, the mentality, Rupa being uh, the physical uh, dimension, the things which are perceived as having physical properties. <clears throat> this question which you've asked, I've answered you with the cessation of consciousness, Vinyanasa Nirodhena, and again in this directly contradicting the teachings of Yajnavalkya uh, in the Upanishad, Brihadaranika Upanishad, who saw the vijnana as the higher self, the purpose, which was the purpose, the ultimate purpose of practice. So the Buddha is um, uh, making a direct contradiction with Upanishadic doctrine. So in Upanishadic doctrine, the basic idea is that this world of manifestations that we live in is like all of the rivers, which each have their individual names and their individual forms. But when all of those rivers flow down, they merge and meld into the great ocean. And that great ocean is the infinite mass of vijnana, of consciousness. And that is your true self. So this is the Upanishadic doctrine. 
Now, interestingly enough, if you know a little bit about science and ecology and so on, then you know, well, that's actually not really how the world works. There isn't a kind of infinite ocean that just somehow receives the water, uh, but actually it's a cycle and the ocean evaporates, becomes rain, rains on the land, and then the water flows down back into the ocean. And it's a cycle where all of these things are mutually dependent on each other. And that, in fact, is the Buddha's teachings. So the Buddha's teachings is a naturalistic teaching. It talks about cycles and patterns. It talks about dependency. It talks about how things relate to each other. So it doesn't talk about this idea that there's some kind of absolute consciousness that exists outside of reality, <clears throat> outside of conventional reality, I should say. Now, the last one, those who have assessed the teaching. So um, Adjita is just kind of throwing this term here, uh, Sankhata Dhamma. Sankhata is an important term. We'll find this a number of um, um, uh, a number of times. It has, as you can see from the uh, look up there, that agreed on, reckoned, uh, so-called named. Okay, uh, this it doesn't mean a kind of bean at the end. So our little uh, Pali, our little Pali compound breaker upper. It's not quite working correctly here. It should be Sankata Dhammase. But anyway, um, doesn't get it always right. It's about maybe 80, 85% correct. Anyway, the first word is right, Sankata, agreed on, reckoned, uh, so-called or named. <clears throat> so one of the basic ideas of Sankata or Sankha is uh, that Sankha is like the reckoning or the calculation of things. So think about, say, business. Right. So keeping your books in business. So, you you know, you know exactly what is there, how many of such and such an item, how much it costs and all of those things. And if you look at Indian philosophies, they're actually very business like a lot of the time. You know, they, they are uh, very uh, interested in categorizing things, you know, making sure everything's placed on the shelf in the right spot. And uh, so this idea that somehow you can survey the world and like reckon everything and categorize everything and know what, where everything is and how it fits in its place. And uh, so this is what that, that sense of um, sankha is. So, so sankha is to, sankhata is having assessed it or having uh, reckoned uh, the teaching. <clears throat> um, so then how do they behave? Not greedy for sensual pleasures, their mind would be unclouded. Skilled in all things, a mendicant would wander mindful. Satobhiku paribhajeti. Now, this particular uh, verse, this uh, last verse, is uh, also found in uh, another um, another uh, sutta, which I will just briefly share with you, and that is the Bhuta Sutta. So the Buddha said to Sariputta, this was said in the way to the beyond in the questions of Ajita. So notice how when, when it's referring, this is not, so there's plenty of places in the suttas where it will just like quote a line or echo a verse or a passage or something like that. But in these cases, one of the reasons why it's so interesting with the Parayana and also the Atika is that they're actually quoted and referred to by name. So this was said in the way to the beyond in the questions of Ajita. <clears throat> there are those who have assessed the teaching and many kinds of trainees here. Tell me about their behavior, good sir, when asked, for you are alert. How should we see the detailed meaning of this brief statement? When he said this, the Sariputras kept silent. Okay, very dramatic, all right? 
very dramatic moment here. Yeah, you can imagine the Buddha's there, Sariputta, the greatest disciple, the most accomplished in wisdom. The Buddha's asking him for the meaning of the particular verse, and he just sits there and says nothing. Mm, very dramatic little moment here. Second time and the third time. And then the Buddha says, Sariputta, do you see that this has come to be? Bhutamidam Sariputta Pasasi. So the, that this has come to be, when he hears this, Bhutamidam, the idea of Bhuta has the, contains the idea of something which has been produced or generated or conditioned. So when Sariputta heard this, then uh, it seems that he recognized the, the, the framework in which the Buddha was asking the question. So this first, so it's interesting that, like, that the, sorry, Putta could have answered by simply quoting from the original passage or paraphrasing the original passage. Whereas, in fact, the answer he gives here is not very similar to the answer that the Buddha gives in the Ajita Panha itself. Uh, but the Buddha was asking for a, a particular framing of it here, and it wasn't until he knew what framing the Buddha wanted that he was able to answer. So one who sees with right wisdom that this has come to be, seeing this, one is practicing for delusion, disillusionment and so on. Uh, one who truly sees uh, this as practicing for disillusionment. So what, the basic point here is that one is practicing what you've seen what has come to be. In other words, you've seen how things are conditioned, how things are produced, or in other words, you've seen dependent origination. In this way, you are a trainee. That is to say, you're a stream enterer, once returner or non-returner. And what is one who has assessed the teaching, one truly sees. So seeing that one is freed by not grasping. Okay, so one is freed by, so one practicing to be freed by not grasping is a trainee. One who has been freed is one who has assessed the teaching, in other words, an arahant. And so this is the uh, explanation that Sariputta gives here. So <clears throat> one of the things about that which is, I think, interesting is that it, it shows us that, the, that in the earliest time in the Sangha that we weren't just getting like one interpretation of everything, right? There was, there were, it, it was, it's an open question. It could have been answered in many ways. Of course, that doesn't mean that it could be answered in any way, right? <laughs> but it does mean that there was uh, a creativity and a contextual awareness in how people were approaching these things. All right. So this is the Ajita Manavapanha. Let's move ahead to the uh, next one, and I will share my screen again. <clears throat> again, you're most welcome to, because we because it's a relatively short session, we won't really have time for a question uh, uh, session, but um, please do feel free to pop any questions into the chat. I am keeping an eye on that. Hopefully I won't disappear this time. Okay, Tissimetea. Uh, so Venerable Tissimetea appears here. Um, the the Metea here is not has no relation to Metea or otherwise known as Maitreya, the Buddha in the future, although uh, in the Buddhist tradition there were a variety of stories that... Uh, sort of connected the two and so on, but uh, in the center itself, there's no such connection. Tisimetea begins with a very uh, powerful question 
who is content here in the world. God has santosito loke. I was reading that this morning, and it really struck me. Who is content? Uh, like, we always want something, don't we? Always want something. And even when we come to a spiritual life, it seems that we're still driven by desire, by ego. And yet to find someone who is truly content, such a powerful thing. Who has no disturbances, injita, perturbations perhaps. Who, having known both ends, is not stuck in the middle. Who do they say is a great man? Who here has escaped the seamstress? Uh, very <coughs> terse questions. And the Buddha gives equally terse answers here. Leading the spiritual life among sensual pleasures, rid of craving ever mindful. A mendicant who, after assessing, is quenched, that's who has no disturbances. So it seems that the first part of that verse probably refers to contentment. It's not entirely clear exactly how that's, um, how they are related, but in any case, um, one who's quenched is one who has no injita. So that idea of injita or eja is one that we will come back to uh, in subsequent questions. That sage, having known both ends, is not stuck in the middle. He is a great man, I declare. He has escaped the seamstress here. So the Buddha doesn't give too much uh, detail in the answer there, uh, which leaves that up to a bit of interpretation. And, in fact, uh, this is another sutta where we find that interpretation uh, was discussed in the suttas. Let's have a look at how that happened. So the Buddhas are in Benares, and after the meal, several senior mendicants sat together in the pavilion, and this discussion came up among them. Reverence, this was said by the Buddha in the way to the beyond in the questions of Metea. The sage has known both ends and is not stuck in the middle. He is a great man, I declare. He has escaped the seamstress here. But what is one end? What is the second end? What is the middle? And who is the seamstress? <clears throat> All good questions. So one of them said, contact is one end. The origin of contact is the second end. The cessation of contact is the middle. And craving is the seamstress. For craving weaves one to being reborn in one state of existence or another. Tanha inang sibbati tasataseva bhavasa nibbatiya. Interesting, right? I find that it's a really, really powerful simile, that idea of the seamstress. Reminds me, as, as a fan of mythology, it reminds me of uh, Penelope sitting weaving uh, in, in uh, the castle of uh, Odysseus as he was wandering around the world. And uh, so many, so that kind of idea of, of that kind of uh, binding and tying together of the world. It's a very kind of potent uh, set of imagery. Um, and then a variety of uh, other questions. The past is one end. The future is the second end. The present is the middle and craving is the seamstress. Okay. doesn't seem like a bad 
explanation as well, right? Past, so we're sort of letting go of the past, the future, you're letting go even Maje Manta and Alimpati, right? So remember not even getting stuck in the middle. Seems reasonable. Another one said pleasant feeling is one end, painful feeling is the second end, neutral feeling is the middle, and craving is the seamstress. Also, okay, seems reasonable, right? Sometimes it's like that. You hear a bunch of different explanations. They all seem to make sense. Another one says name is one and form is the second end. Consciousness is the middle and craving is the seamstress. Another one said the six interior sense fields are one end. The six exterior sense fields are the second end. Consciousness is the middle. Craving is the seamstress. Identity is one end. The origin of identity is the second end. The cessation of identity is the middle. Craving is the seamstress. Not sure about that one. Okay, I mean, I'll allow it, but the Buddha is saying you don't be attached to the middle and it says if the cessation of identity is the middle, I don't know. It sounds a bit sus, but anyway, we'll leave it at that. So one of the uh, mendicants said to the senior mendicants, <clears throat> each of us has spoken from the heart. Come, reverence, let's go to the Buddha and inform him about this. As he answers, so we'll remember it. Yes, reference. So notice that they, they all have these different interpretations, but, and I know this will, might come as a, as a shock to you, but they don't get angry and upset with each other because they have a different opinion. I know, amazing, right? It's almost as if they were kind of mature adults who understood that other people can have different opinions and that was kind of okay. So they went to the Buddha and asked him, who has spoken well? Mendicants, You've all spoken well in a way. Oh, okay. So they've all given answers which are in line with Dhamma and they've all given answers which make sense in terms of the context. However, this is what I was referring to in the way to beyond in the questions of Metea when I said the sage has known both ends and is not stuck in the middle. He's a great man. I declare he's escaped the seamstress here. Listen and pay close attention, I will speak. The Buddha said this, contact is one end, the origin of contact is the second end, the cessation of contact is the middle, and craving is the seamstress. For craving weaves one to being reborn in one state of existence or another. That's how a mendicant directly knows what should be directly known and completely understands what should be completely understood. Knowing and understanding thus, they make an end of suffering in this very life. So the first answer was right. They're all they're all pretty good, but one answer was right. It got a it got a you got to imagine that the monk who was like the first answer was like was feeling pretty pleased with themselves at that moment. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, but it got, you know, and it's, again, it's to me this is it's really interesting because you see something of the life of these teachings within the community something people would discuss, they would have interpretations, they'd be back and forth. And so there was this, this the, these teachings are never something, they're not, they're not just a dead letter, but they're something which was alive and engaged with in the community itself. Uh, and that to me is one of the really kind of powerful uh, things about the, the suttas. So they're not, they're not just sort of dead textbooks, but they're, they're regarded with this sense of urgency. I mean, we've already seen how, urgently the 16 brahmins really wanted to know and the effort they put into come and see the buddha all right let us continue uh the seamstress 
Uh, yeah, so Debbie, Debbie just mentioned that she was interested in the idea of a stream here. So this was the, the streams that are flowing everywhere. So this is not the stream as in stream entry, but there the stream is used as a synonym for the uh, sensors and the, the stream of activity uh, that we're getting through the sensors. Uh, Anne mentioned, says, so each stitch is a life. I don't know if each stitch is a life, but it's more like, like there's this idea in the suttas, you have this idea of a bhavaneti, which is like a, a, ne- a bhava is a life and a neti is like a, like a cord or something that binds, you know? So you have this almost like a way that things are being woven and bound together, like a create a tapestry that tells a story. It's very, it's really kind of, um, I find a really evocative set of imagery. Anyway, let us move on. Next one. Uh, so the, the question, Punika, uh, these questions are also quoted elsewhere in the Nikayas. We'll briefly check those as well. To the imperturbable, the seer of the root, said Venerable Punika, I have come in need with a question. Ati Panhena Agama. On what grounds have hermits and men, aristocrats and Brahmins here in the world performed so many sacrifices to the gods? I ask you, blessed one, please tell me this. Whatever hermits and men, replied the Buddha, aristocrats or Brahmins here in the world have performed so many different sacrifices to the gods, all performed sacrifices bound to old age, hoping for some state of existence. So the sacrifice, such an important part of not just Brahmanical religion, but religion all around the world. It's so strange. The sacrifice is one of the strangest things in all of human culture. And we get so used to the idea that it's normal that you forget that it's deeply weird. Remember that in the uh, opening narrative that Bhavari had just uh, uh, performed a sacrifice. So... And again, this is a kind of a challenging answer that the Buddha is giving here. So he's even Bhavari, even their own teacher, was uh, uh, attached or concerned with old age. And that's why he did this. As to those hermits and men, said Venerable Purnaka, and aristocrats and Brahmins here in the world who performed so many different sacrifices to the gods, being diligent in the methods of sacrifice, Have they crossed over rebirth and old age, good sir? I ask you, blessed one, please tell me this. Okay, so um, one of the, if you look in the the Brahmanical scriptures, they have a lot of detail about exactly the right way to do uh, sacrifices. So this is what he's meaning when he's talking about being diligent in the methods of sacrifice. The Buddha, again, giving a fairly uncompromising answer, hoping Invoking, praying, and worshipping, replied the Buddha. They pray for pleasure, derived from profit, devoted to sacrifice, besotted by rebirth. They've not crossed over rebirth and old age, I declare. Okay, so that that's a this is this that's a hard one to hear. It's a hard one to hear. Hoping Asi Santi, right? I gave a whole talk last Friday about hoping and about how we should all lose hope. And um some uh, some people really didn't like it. I can't imagine why. Anyway, uh, and so these are all this idea that that prayer and these religious activities are bound up with wanting to get something. Right? And here you find perhaps 
the earliest or one of the earliest ideas of expressions of the idea that you can only make money if you've got money. Uh, and so they're saying you're playing for pleasure, praying for ple- praying for pleasure derived from profit, So the point here is that only those who are wealthy can perform sacrifices. Only if you've got staff can you just throw it away. And uh, that's a really interesting uh, perspective and a very kind of true perspective that one of the sociological roles of sacrifice has always been to burn off excess wealth and to distribute wealth with with others. Uh, And so um, only if you have things can you get things. So this whole round of sacrifice, even though it seems that sacrifice is about giving things up, Actually, the whole thing is bound up with this cycle of acquisition and profiting. If those, sacrifice, if those devoted to sacrifice, said Venerable Purnika, have not, by sacrificing, crossed over rebirth and old age, then who exactly in the world of gods and humans has crossed over rebirth and old age, good sir? I ask you, blessed one, please tell me this. Having assessed the world high and low, and again, this word sankhaya, which we're finding finding commonly used in these passages. There is nothing in the world that disturbs them. Peaceful, unclouded, untroubled, with no need for hope. They've crossed over rebirth and old age, I declare. So again, this idea of uh, the word I'm translating here as hope is asa, which is probably the closest uh, Pali word. There's no, there's no word that's really exactly the same as the English word for hope, but Asa is probably the uh, closest. Uh, so, and again, the idea here is that the spiritual practice that we do is based on who we are now and what we can realize and what can, we can become now. And so in Buddhist idea, we're not doing something because we have hope of a better world in the future. But, but because we have knowledge that if we do the right thing now, that we create a better world right now. So when I'm saying that we should be losing hope, I'm not saying that we should embrace despair, although despair isn't such a bogeyman. You know, just a little bit of despair is okay. Just, just like a, just like a, just like a touch, you know, not too much and, uh, keeps things, keeps things spicy. Anyway, uh, so this sutta again is um, uh, referred to in the suttas. This is in Anguttara Nikaya 3.32. But I won't, in this case, I won't read 3.32, even though it's actually a really interesting sutta. I'll I'll actually, I'll just paste it in the uh, chat for you, but otherwise we won't get through uh, enough suttas. Um, (coughs) It's a really interesting sutta. But I'd like to move ahead. Uh, let's look at the next one. Okay, I'm going to skip over the, the next one and I'm going to go straight to uh, 5.6, the questions of Dhotaka. Um, again, I'm a bit concerned we're running out of time. I ask you, Blessed One, please tell me this. I long for your voice, great hermit. After hearing your message, I shall train myself for quenching. Well then. Be keen, alert, replied the Buddha, and mindful right here. After hearing this message, go on. 
and train yourself for quenching. I see in the world of gods and humans a Brahman traveling with nothing. Therefore, I bow to you, all seer. Release me, Sakyan, from my doubts. Notice that uh, this description of a Brahman traveling with nothing uh, is very similar to the description of Bhavari in the opening narrative, where he was also said to be a Brahman with nothing who was embarking on a journey. A <clears throat> uh, very powerful uh, verse response by the Buddha here. I'm not able to release anyone in the world who has doubts, Adhotaka, but when you understand the best of teachings, you shall cross this flood. So uh, this idea that the Buddha uh, said uh, he cannot um, liberate anybody, cannot get them enlightened, but he can only show them the path. Uh, and here, obviously, a very famous kind of idea we find a lot in uh, um, modern Buddhism and you know, um, often quoted idea. And this is one of the main sources for that idea. Again, it's a radical notion and it's a radical gesture of humility to say it's not up to him, it's not up to the Buddha to do this. It's up to you to practice. Then you shall cross this flood. Teach me, Brahman, out of compassion, the principle of seclusion so that I may understand. I wish to practice right here, peaceful, independent, as unimpeded as space. I shall extol that peace for you, replied the Buddha, that is apparent in the present, not relying on tradition. Having understood it, one who lives mindfully may cross over clinging in the world. And I rejoice, great hermit in that supreme peace, having understood which one who lives mindfully may cross over clinging in the world. Once you've understood that everything, replied the Buddha, you are aware of in the world, above, below, or round, between, is a snare. Don't crave for life after life. Okay. So I, w- I will leave Dotika's questions for now, and I'll come to the Upasiva question. This is a more famous set of questions. Uh, and I'll dwell on this a little bit longer. <clears throat> Alone and independent, O Sakyan, I'm not able to cross the great flood. So you can see how this one's almost like drawing on the narrative from the previous one. The Buddha said, well, I can't actually, I'm not able to bring you across myself. You have to do it. You, you have to do the work. And here Upasiva is saying, but I can't do it alone. You expect me to cross this great flood? Tell me a support, O seer, depending on which I may cross this flood. Yeah? Tell me a support. There must be something I can use that's going to help me. Aramranang bruhi. Mindfully contemplating nothingness, replied the Buddha. Depending on the perception, there is nothing across the flood. Giving up sensual pleasures, refraining from chatter. Watch day and night for the ending of craving. Oh. So here, the Buddha is uh, directly teaching the dimension of nothingness. And so many of you are probably familiar in the Buddhism, we have the Eightfold Path, the last factor of the Eightfold Path, right, Samadhi, the right Samadhi is usually defined as the four jhanas. 
And in addition to the four, uh, uh, I hesitate to say ordinary, but the four standard jhanas, we have the four formless attainments, which are sort of consequent to that. The infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, and neither perception nor non-perception. Now, um, when the Buddha practiced with his former teachers, Alara Kalama and Uddhika Ramaputta, he famously uh, developed the third of those, the base of uh, nothingness with Alara Kalama and the uh, base of neither, uh, the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception with Uddhika Ramaputta. And so there seems to be, with these uh, Brahmins, this idea of nothingness is a kind of recurring theme. Uh, and here it's, you know, it's quite explicit that this is what the Buddha is talking about. And so it seems that these are sort of a circle of Brahmins or a school of Brahmins who were perhaps uh, affiliated with the Larakalama, or at the very least were practicing in a similar way and who were used to practicing this particular state. Remember, again, in the introduction, uh, it said that all of these uh, Brahmins were experienced meditators. <clears throat> so depending on the perception, there is nothing across the flood. Giving up. So again, the Buddha doesn't want to, like, th- he doesn't want to get them to throw out the things that are valuable from their tradition. They've already been doing this very powerful meditation, so he wants them to continue that. Giving up sensual pleasure is refraining from chatter, watch day and night for the ending of craving. What is free? So Ubasiva goes on to ask some very uh, interesting questions. So one is free of sensual desire, depending on nothingness, all else left behind, hit manyana, freed in the ultimate liberation of perception. Would they remain there without traveling on? So his use of language here is very precise. So the, the, the dimension of nothingness is the ultimate liberation of perception. Why? Because the next stage is neither perception nor non-perception. So nothingness is the highest liberation of perception. Huh? It's a very subtle point, but he's using language in a very precise way here. Would they remain there? without travelling on. Now, the exact interpretation of this is not entirely obvious, (coughs) and you could read it a number of ways, but I think what it's referring to here is the non-return. It says, so he's got rid of any uh, attachment or desire to sensual pleasures. So this well describes the non-returner who is practising that dimension of nothingness then they get reborn in that realm, would they remain there without travelling on? In other words, you know, would they go to that realm? Would they then get reborn somewhere else after that? <clears throat> what happens What happens to them? Uh, one, now, the Buddha, again, the Buddha's answer is, is quite interesting. The Buddha said, one free of sensual desire, depending on nothingness, all left behind, freed in the ultimate liberation of perception, they would remain there without travelling on. Hmm. If they were to remain there without travelling on, even for many years, O seer. So traditionally it says that rebirth in such a realm would last for 60,000 eons. So when it says for many years, it's not kidding, Uh, even for many years and growing cool right there, but freed, would the consciousness of such a one pass away? 
So here, again, we're talking about these kind of very, very exalted states and, and ideas, and yet Upasiva keeps on, keeps on pushing, keeps on asking. So if you are a non-returner, you get reborn in that realm of nothingness and then grow cool, in other words, become an arahant in that realm, would the consciousness of such a one pass away? Chaveta <clears throat> vinyana. As a flame tossed by a gust of wind, replied the Buddha, comes to an end and no longer counts, so too a sage freed from mental phenomena comes to an end and no longer counts. Uh, and the, again, very evocative imagery, very powerful, memorable imagery here. Uh, notice again the use of the word sankha as in to reckon or to count or to measure or to add up something. Right? So they come to an end, atang paleti. The freed from mental phenomena, again, the use of language is very precise here. Namakaya is a term for the cluster or uh, uh, complex of mental qualities. Now, remember that this is talking about a person who has been reborn in that realm of formlessness where physical properties have already been left behind. So they uh, only have that namakaya to be freed from. <clears throat> Still, Upasiva is not satisfied. I've I got to admit, I like Upasiva. Like, I, like I, 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 someone who can start where he started and then just keep on pushing for questions. This is how you get the really good stuff. Uh, one who has come to an end, do they not exist? Atangato, so Uduva Sonati. Or are they eternally well? So, of course, that would be the normal idea in the Brahmanical um, uh, circles that they get reborn in that realm and they stay there for eternity. Please, sage, answer me clearly, for you truly understand this matter. One who's come, and the Buddha gives a very enigmatic answer. One who's come to an end cannot be measured, replied the Buddha. They have nothing by which one might describe them. When all things have been eradicated, eradicated too are all ways of speech. Mm -hmm. One who's come to an end cannot be measured. Literally, if you translate this literally, overly literally, it would be something like, uh, for one who's come to an end, there is no measure. Uh, that by which one might describe them does not exist for them. Huh? So they have escaped concepts and the words to describe that are not found. So the idea here is that our uh, we, we describe things by the features or the particulars uh, of those, those uh, uh, properties which they have. But somebody who's in that state, uh, there is nothing by which one might describe them. ending with a uh, slightly Wittgensteinian moment there. So here are uh, some of the questions in the Parayana Vaga. Uh, and I'll just uh, check a couple of the things you've uh, said in the comments here before we wrap up. 
Uh, years ago, a Buddhist I knew said that abandon all you hope or hope ye who entered here could be thought of a Buddhist idea. I told it to someone who was a teacher who didn't like it. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I find it, I do find it interesting because hope is an idea that is, it's a Christian idea, faith, hope and charity. And now look, the fact that it's a Christian idea doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. But it's interesting that it really isn't in Buddhism. You know, and it's, it, again, it's not it's not just like there is this thing that, that isn't there, but it's that the Buddha talked about things in quite a different way. You know, it's not like there's something lacking from Buddhism, but the way that Buddha approached things. And we've seen this, you know, even in, in, in these questions, you know, what is there that is what is there that is apparent in this very life? Yeah, something that I don't have to rely on tradition. I don't have to long for something. I don't have to produce something in the future. And so this idea, to me, this is much more powerful. And I, I do believe, you know, because I, I hear this a lot, I hear this especially with, when it comes to climate change. You know, people say we have to have hope, we have to have hope. And it always seems a bit desperate to me. It, I mean, it seems a bit fearful to me. And I'm, so I'm always like, well, I don't know, I gave up hope years ago. I'm doing all right. It's okay. <laughs> oh, great, you know. Have, have good days and bad days, but it's okay. And you don't get so afraid of it. Hope's just a feeling. It's just an emotion. It's just an idea. It's okay. Huh? Get up in the morning. What are you going to do? Well, you're still going to live a good life. That's the important thing. What are we going to, how are we going to live our life today? I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe something good will happen. I don't know. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, let me uh, just... Um, uh, last question here from Julian. Uh, is the count here active, one who counts, or passive, one who is counted or plays on both uh, senses? It's interesting. It seems to sort of play on both those senses because it, it has that, certainly it's somebody who has counted, has reckoned, right? So somebody who has understood fully or, and assessed what's happening, uh, but also is the idea that once you've done that, that you step out of that realm of reckoning so that you can yourself no longer be counted. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we could go in a lot more detail into the specific nuances of that. And I'm just wanting to sort of draw attention to the um, prominent role that that concept of sankha plays within these texts. Um, so I think we've reached pretty much the end again today. Uh, look, it's been great uh, sharing some time with you to talk about the Parayanavaga. Hopefully... Um, you know, we can uh, convey something of the sense of the, the passages, something of the role that it has within Buddhism, but also to me, you know, it, it's something I really love. And so I'm trying to hopefully convey something of my, uh, you know, my love and my devotion for these, these suttas because I, th I think these are really uh, precious, uh, uh, precious moments that have been passed down to us. And, you know, I still find that I come back to these after so many years and find so much that's valuable and worthwhile in them. So hopefully this has been something that's been interesting and uplifting for you all. I wish you the best, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week.